Hi, this is Sophia Ruan Goucher, author of A to Z of Detoxing, the ultimate guide to reducing our toxic exposures, and host of this Practical Non-Toxic Living podcast. Welcome. Did you know that there are 76 FDA-approved additives that U.S. winemakers can use? Some of these are natural and some are toxic. What are these additives used for? In addition to using pesticides to support the farming of vineyard grapes, additives are also used for manufacturing the wine's taste, extending its shelf life, and much more. Ultimately, these chemicals help winemakers' bottom line of maximizing recurring revenues and minimizing expenses. One way they achieve this is by adding sugar and alcohol to the wine to improve its taste. In this podcast with Todd White, you'll learn a lot more about this. Todd White, a health-conscious wine lover and passionate biohacker, is founder of an incredible company called Dry Farm Wines. Dry Farm Wines is the largest natural wine merchant in the world, bringing awareness to natural wine consumption and supporting farmers who honor the soil. I also love that Dry Farm Wines does laboratory testing to ensure that each bottle it sells is free of added sugars, lower in sulfites, and lower in alcohol. The wines are friendly to low-carb, paleo, ketogenic, and low-sugar diets. Dry Farm Wines has seen 780% growth in revenue in the last three years, making it one of the fastest growing private companies in the United States without any debt or investors. At the time of our interview in April 2020, Todd estimated that Dry Farm Wines sells about 30% of the wines that they test. Most, if not all wines it sells are from outside the United States because American wine generally do not meet the strict purity standards of Dry Farm Wines. Dry Farm Wines is dedicated to supporting family farmers who preserve 87,000 acres of organic vineyards and save 1.4 billion gallons of water annually by not irrigating their vines. Dry Farm Wines vets each grower's practice and support those who focus on regenerative farming, biodiversity, hand harvesting, and the absence of industrial additives. Today, after 15 years in the wine business, Todd's life is dedicated to educating and helping people make better choices about food, nutrition, and how they think about consuming alcohol. As the founder of Dry Farm Wines, a writer, speaker, and a leader in the organic natural wine movement, he has widely educated communities on conscious consumption. Todd is deeply passionate about bringing people together to share love and laughter through natural wine and the health benefits it provides. In this podcast, you'll also learn what is natural wine and are there certifications to look for when shopping for natural wine? What are health benefits that some people experience from drinking natural wine? What are differences between conventional, biodynamic, and natural farming and winemaking approaches? And last, we'll also learn about Todd's approach to diet, fasting, his favorite healthy fats, and his top three practical non-toxic living tips. As soon as I learned about Dry Farm Wines, I subscribed to a monthly box. I love that I can become mindless about stocking my kitchen with red and white wines that have been laboratory tested to be among the healthiest wines in the world. The bottles are actually cheaper than what my husband was purchasing. 
Dry Farm Wines also offers a 100% happiness promise. This means that if you're not fully happy with any bottle received from Dry Farm Wines, then you can receive either a replacement or a refund, whichever you prefer. I am so proud to now be an affiliate partner with Dry Farm Wines, and I have a special offer for you. Receive a bottle of wine for just a penny with your first order. Visit www.dryfarmwines.com forward slash non-toxic living to get started. From this webpage, you can select what kind of delivery you'd like to receive. For example, you may want 12 reds every month or three rosés every other. I receive six reds and six whites each month. They're great to share with friends. So again, to start your adventure with natural wines, visit www.dryfarmwines.com forward slash non-toxic living. And let me know what you think. I love to hear from you. You can send me a direct message at Ruan Living on Instagram or Facebook. And for more great offers and information, register for my newsletter by texting the word detox, D-E-T-O-X, to the number 66866. Now on with the show, which I hope you enjoy. How I began Dry Farm Wines was really not a business. I was trying to find a healthier way to drink. So I've been a lifelong wine aficionado. been drinking wine since I was nine years old, right? Wow. Love wine. Love <laughs> wine so much. Did your parents that, give you the wine or did you have to sneak they did. it? They did. They did. Love wine so much that 22 years ago, I moved to the Napa Valley, which is the most important wine appellation in North America. And I've lived here ever since. And But I've also been a lifelong biohacker and really been – biohacking before it was biohacking. So in the 1980s, I started experimenting with Atkins diet, primarily as a way to manage weight loss, right? Because I was carbohydrate intolerant or refined carbohydrate intolerant. So as I aged, then I got more into biohacking. The story here is that about six years ago, I decided to start experimenting with the ketogenic diet, which at that time was starting to flutter around the biohacking movement but it wasn't out to the mainstream media or to the mainstream market yet, which Would happened about three years ago. Would you explain the ketogenic diet for those listeners who aren't familiar with it? So the ketogenic diet, the goal is to minimize insulin response and to maintain a low blood sugar or even a, mimic, a fasting mimicking diet. So insulin at one point in our evolutionary journey Insulin was the hormone that allowed us to survive as a species during periods of famine and feast because for most of the human existence, we didn't have regular food supply. But now that same hormone is killing us as we overstimulate it, right? Leads to obesity, heart disease. We believe Alzheimer's and all chronic diseases are generally linked to the hyperproduction of insulin. Now, there are what I would call three levels of ketogenic diet. There's the therapeutic ketogenic diet, which is what I started on for a couple of years. It gets to be a bit tedious and boring over time. But a therapeutic ketogenic diet is 80 to 90% fat, very low carbohydrate, and very low moderate protein. That's therapeutic used to treat epilepsy and other maladies. But then there's the modified ketogenic diet, which is what I'm on today. And a modified ketogenic diet looks like the Atkins diet. You can stay in ketosis, but you're not seeking a therapeutic level of ketosis, right? And then there's what I would call just the low-carb diet, which if your carbs are low enough, you'll 
inter bounce around the ketotic state. And what I would consider nutritional ketosis is, is the blood measurement. So you can measure beta hydroxybutyrate in your blood. There's a meter for that. There's a few meters that are sold to measure ketones in your blood. It's the most accurate way of measuring ketone bodies in your body. And so I would consider nutritional ketosis beginning sometime, somewhere between 0.5 and 1 millimolar. When I was in therapeutic ketosis, I would generally stay between 2 millimolar liter and 4.5 millimolar, depending upon what I ate. But now, today, generally, I bounce between 1 milli and 1.2 or 1.5. And so this allows me to have some carbohydrate. It allows me to have a little more protein than I would normally have if I were therapeutic because the, the fat level is so high on a therapeutic level that just protein is super moderate and, of course, carbohydrate is super limited. So that leaves for a very narrow choice of foods and a lot of fat and so healthy fats, of course. Today I'm on a modified ketogenic diet. I, that's what the Atkins diet is, and that's what I started with. And Robert Atkins, who was – you know, caught a really hard time in the press during all that period. It was called a quack. Turns out he was right that blood glucose and overproduction of insulin is is not only killing us, making us sick, but it also prematurely ages us. So that's that's what the keto diet is. When I became therapeutically ketogenic about six years ago, I was having a difficult time drinking wine. It was making me feel bad, and so I stopped drinking wine for a while. That didn't work out too well. So I wanted to return to drinking wine. And I thought it was the alcohol because sometimes some people, one of the side effects of a ketogenic diet, of a therapeutic ketogenic diet, is that some people have sensitivity to alcohol. And so I thought it was just the higher alcohol. You see, alcohol and wine, and it surprises people to hear me say this as the wine guy, but see, alcohol is a highly toxic substance. It's a neurotoxin. And so it's a very dangerous drug and destroys millions of people's lives. And people are like, well, I thought you were the wine guy. Well, I am, but I have a specific message. If you want to drink, here's what you should drink. You should drink lower alcohol wines. I happen to love wine. I don't love alcohol or in high doses. See, alcohol has been increasing in commercial wines over the last 30 years. It now teeters at almost 15% average. And right? what, what was it at like 15 years ago? 12 or 12 and a half percent. Now, that doesn't sound like a much of a difference, but it's a huge difference. So I started looking around. I talked with a friend of mine in Napa Valley, who I thought was the smartest person in the wine business. And I asked him, how low, how, I want to make some low alcohol wine. So there's a technical process that you can use to remove alcohol from, from wine. And I was just going to remove alcohol and make a lower alcohol wine product. And he said, have you tasted any of the low alcohol wines coming out of Europe? And I was like, no. Never heard of them, didn't know such a thing existed. So what happened next was I went looking for these low-alcohol wines, and I stumbled quite by accident on a, a wine importer, an American who lived in Paris, who was importing these very specific low-alcohol wines that I really liked. And so I got in touch with them, and I found out that they were natural wines. And I was like, well, what is a natural wine? Aren't all wines natural? He explained to me what a natural wine was, and then I was like, I did some more homework, I did some more research, and I started, because I'd made wine in Napa Valley before, I started taking these wines and submitting them to analogy testing. So, because there are analogy labs in Napa, because wine is a primary business here, I started biohacking these wines. I started quantifying them with lab tests. 
We'll get back to that in a moment. So anyway, I really love these wines. I talked to this guy, and he explained to me what natural wines are, and I'm going to tell you what they are and what's wrong with conventional wines. Less than one-tenth of one percent of all wines in the world are natural. They're very rare. They're quite hard to find. We're the largest importer and resellers of natural wines in the world. So what we did was bring natural wine to the health-conscious masses, right, for people who cared about their health. They didn't know what natural wine was before we came along, although it was in the market in some markets, but nobody knew what it was. So I've educated a few million people by appearing on podcasts and television and so on and so forth. So here's what's wrong with conventional wines, and then we'll get to what a natural wine is. Natural wine is a very confusing term to consumers because they believe, just as I believed at the time, aren't all wines natural. No, they're not, and I'm going to tell you why. So here's what's wrong with conventional wines. So when you go into the grocery store, all those wines you see, hundreds or thousands of bottles down the long shelf, or you go into a wine shop, the problem is the same thing that's happened, it begins with money and greed, as most bad things do. So the same thing that's happened in our food supply has happened in our wine supply. Now, what I mean by that, there's been massive corporate consolidation in the food industry, there's nine or 10 companies that touch about everything that you eat. So what's happened in the wine business is because of greed and money has been massive corporate consolidation. So, and everything I'm about to explain to you about the wine industry and the dirty, dark secrets that they have are easily verifiable from a Google search. But we'll start with the money and greed problem because this is the center of it all. So 52% of all the wines you see in those grocery store shelves are made by just three companies, right? And the top 30 U.S. wine companies make over 70% of U.S. wines. This is where the problem begins. Now, these multi-billion dollar marketing conglomerates don't want you to know this. So what they do is they hide behind thousands of brands and labels to confuse you. They'll have a farmhouse or a chateau on the, on the label to have you believe that you're drinking from the farmhouse, but actually you're drinking in most cases from massive corporate factories, winemaking factories located in central California, where these handful of companies make most of the wine you see in the store. It all looks different. all sounds different. It's all made by the same people, right? And so their goal is to make more profit. Their goal is not to make better wine, safer wine, healthier wine wine cheaper and more profitable and so that begins with farming practices that begins with irrigation and the name of my company is dry farm wines what dry farming means is that there's no irrigation used in the farming so now when you don't irrigate it costs more to farm and it takes a lot more effort irrigation makes everything easy in addition irrigation produces a higher yield meaning more berries on the cluster and the berries weigh more because they're filled with water, right? Well, fruit is sold by the ton. So the bigger the yield and the more it weighs, the more it's worth. So it begins with irrigation and then industrial farming practices. <clears throat> the use of glyphosate, which is Roundup, which is Roundup is the single most common applied herbicide in U.S. vineyards, period, right? It's used everywhere. You may also know glyphosate has been found in California wines, both in organic and non-organic. It's thought that perhaps it's coming in through irrigation. So anyway, so you've got industrial farming 
and then you've got uh, and then you have um, and then you have irrigation. So that's where that's where the it begins. And then from there, here's what these large wine companies don't want you to know. What I call the dirty dark secret of the wine business. There's 76 additives approved by the FDA for the use in winemaking. 76. Now some of them are natural, and some of them are very toxic. The most toxic additive in the winemaking process that's used to treat tens of millions of gallons of wine every year is called dimethyl dicarbonate. It's highly toxic. And so there are also other toxic chemicals being used in winemaking like ammonia phosphate and copper sulfate, right? And so you don't know that because the wine industry has kept that a secret. And I'll tell you how they keep it secret because they funnel millions of dollars of lobby money to Washington, D.C. to get politicians to keep contents labeling off of wine. So wine is the only major food product without a contents label on it. That's what they, the reason they don't want a contents label on it is because they don't want you to know what's in it. They don't want you to tell you that that wine was treated with dimethyl dicarbonate. And so, or ammonia phosphate as an example. Uh, or other animal products for vegans. They don't want to tell you that. And so they keep that a secret until I came along and told a few million people. They keep that a secret by not having a contents label or any nutritional information. You may also know, and we'll talk about this, our wines are sugar-free and tested for sugar, right? And so <clears throat> there's no nutritional information on a wine bottle either for the same reason. So what natural wine is, and this is how it differs, is Natural wine is always organically or biodynamically farmed. In our case, it's always irrigation-free, although that's not, that's not a clarification. That's not a qualification for the natural wine category. Let me talk about what that category means before we get into exactly what it is because it's, it's very simple what it is. But the category has no certification. So there's no certification for natural wine. Now, France just announced that they are going to be creating a the first natural wine certification in the world. And we're very pleased about that. But there now, Dry Farm Wines, my company has a certification process, and it's above and beyond just natural. While there is no international certification for natural wines today, France is about to be the first country that will introduce the first official certification for natural wines. Dry Farm Wines, my company, does have a certification process. And we do certify wines to meet our very specific health and purity criteria. And we'll talk about what that means in a moment. But first, let's talk about there is an international understanding for people in the natural wine business or for anybody who's in the wine business with any any knowledge, there is an understanding what natural wine means. And that understanding is as follows. And it's pretty simple. Natural wines are always organically or biodynamically farmed. And biodynamic farming is a prescriptive advanced form of, of organic farming. So there's always no chemicals and always organically or biodynamically farmed. Number two they are always fermented, and this is, takes a little bit of an explanation here, but they are always fermented 
with indigenous wild native yeast that are that are indigenous to the vineyard where the grapes were grown. So what does all that mean? When a grape berry is harvested, when it is ready for harvest, every grape berry on the planet has wild yeast on the skin. It is sort of a white, milkish-looking film that's on the skin of every grape at harvest. And that's the wild indigenous yeast that was collected naturally through the air in that vineyard. Natural winemakers only ferment with wild native yeast. Now, let's talk about everybody else and why they don't. Here's why commercial winemakers don't use the wild native yeast. While they always use genetically modified, lab-grown commercial yeast. And the reason for that is, number one, these wild native yeast are difficult to work with. They're temperamental. And you can't make wine in very large volume using them. They're just too – they require too much coddling, right? They're just fragile. And so you can only make wine in small quantities, and you have to watch the fermentation carefully because what you don't want is a broken fermentation, meaning that the fermentation breaks down right in the middle of its process. And then you have to try to restart. It's very risky, right? And so commercial winemakers want to make wine in very large quantities, and they want to make sure that they have an easy yeast that just does its job, never breaks, and is very sturdy. So they use these genetically modified lab-cultured yeasts to do that job. The second reason they use them is that the lab culture yeast will withstand a higher alcohol level. So high alcohol will kill a native yeast. And then number three, you can purchase these yeast in various flavor profiles. What I mean by that is if you want to, if you grow an industrial grape that's irrigated in central California and is of very low and poor quality and you want it to taste like it's from Italy, they have a yeast for that. Natural winemakers always use the wild native yeast. And number three, there are no additives. The 76 additives I mentioned, they're, they're not added to that. Now, for dry farm wine certification, we require all of that. In addition to, we require that it be mold-free. So all of our wines are tested for mycotoxins, ochratoxin A, uh, which mold can be in wines. Uh, we also test for sure. So all of our wines are sugar-free. The only way you know if a wine is sugar-free is the lab tested. And then, uh, we also require that, uh, no, no, no vines be irrigated. Almost no natural. I've never seen a natural wine that was, that was irrigated. But that being said, that's not an international standard of natural wines. I have seen natural wines in the United States that were irrigated. Never seen any in Europe. We don't sell domestic wine because there's no wines made in the United States that meet our standards of health and purity. Wow. So that's the reason when you get a box from you, you always see that they're from out of the country. So we work with 800 small family farms around the world. Most of them are in Europe. I have four producers in South Africa and two in Chile, but most are spread across Europe. And so they're just very, very small family farms. They don't make large quantities of wine. That's the reason we work with so many of them. So these small family farms, are, they're sort of like activists, right? They're just activists for the earth and for a healthy way of living. You know, they live organically. They eat most of everything off of their farm or the farm of their neighbors. It's just a very kind of congenial, you know, people who care about the earth. They're not necessarily health advocates per se. They care about a way of life, right? And so it's just a way that they live. And so they produce wine. They usually produce also other things on the farm. 
maybe they'll have orchards. They may have they may have animals on the farm. They may have uh, olive oil is very common, right? And so they they usually produce other things other than wine because they can't make enough wine. You can't make natural wine and produce other things as well. But anyway, so that's what wine is, and that's how commercial wines work. And so what we did was go out and lab test. So in addition to sugar and mold, and uh, we also test for alcohol. See, another thing about alcohol stated on a wine bottle, it's not required in the United States to be accurate by law. So if it says it's 14% under the law, it could be as high as 15.5% and still be legal. We do not drink or sell wines over 12.5%. That's historically where wines were, alcohol was made. We have wine as low as 7%. Most of the wine I personally drink is between 9 and 11.5%. Just because I like the taste of that, I also like to drink, I drink a bottle a night unless I'm on an extended water fast. I like to enjoy wine and so if I lower the alcohol, I can drink more without having a negative effect, right? And also happen to like the taste profile. Alcohol greatly influences the way a wine tastes. Assuming it's good wine, alcohol is the single largest contributor to determining how the wine tastes. So higher alcohol wines are bolder, bigger, richer, more dense. They're hotter. Where lower alcohol wines, like I drink, are lighter, fresher, and brighter. And the reason that's important, because that's the same way I eat, right? I eat fresh, bright, and light, right? That's the way my customers eat, too. So this wine is more compatible with their, the way they, they eat. See, when you eat a clean, healthy, fresh diet, right, that's not filled with sugar and preservatives and byproducts, when you're eating real food, your palate adjusts to that, right? So when you're not eating processed foods and a lot of sugar, your palate tastes more because that processed food and that sugar kills your palate. And so you need bigger, bolder, richer taste in order to be sensitized, right? And, but when you eat lighter, brighter, fresher, then your palate is more delicate. And so our customers respond very favorably, as you know from drinking the wines, that they're just brighter, fresher, lighter. Could you talk more about symptoms that people may be able to improve by detoxing their wines? Because I think a lot of people have symptoms that think, these people think that's just their normal. And it isn't until you take a break from maybe all the sugars and the additives. Like let's, let's talk, like assume a person drinks every night. So wine is a regular part of a person's lifestyle. And if they maybe like drink dry farm wines for a week or a month, what differences might they experience? The differences will be extraordinary and notable. I mean, we uh, once you drink dry farm wines for a month, you will not, even for a week, you, you, you couldn't go back to drinking conventional wine. It, you wouldn't like the taste of it. You could taste the additives. You can just taste it. Tastes funny. You thought that's just what it tastes like because you never drank real wine before, right? And then the alcohol difference is huge, right? And so you'll just feel better, not waking up in the middle of the night, not waking up dehydrated, just from drinking less alcohol. And then in addition to that, Many people suffer symptoms that they don't even know about. 
So it could be a flushness, a warmness, a tightening in their frontal cortex, um, just just a, just pressure in their brain. It's, it's, these additives and and we don't know exactly what causes it, but people think this is just what. And also the way it tastes, right? Com- once you drink natural wine for a week and you go back to try and drink conventional wine, you won't be able to drink it. I mean, it's a common complaint that we get. What am I going to do with all this wine I have? I can't drink it anymore. You know, or what I do when I go out to a restaurant, I can't drink this wine, right? So these are people, we get thousands of emails and also have lots of experiences at events when we did events before COVID. Last year, we did 140 health and performance events. You know, we're the official wine for everybody who does big events, JJ Virgin, Paleo FX, you know, Bulletproof um, Upgraded Labs, Dave Asprey, you know, all the big health and performance events where the official wine. So we meet with thousands of people who experience our product. Have you heard from people that uh, who maybe the only change in a week or a month was a, a change in the wine they drank going from conventional to dry farm wines? Have you heard that people lost weight? Oh, yeah. Of course, you're going to lose weight. Just it depends on for a number of reasons. Could be could be the sugar that's contained in wines. So wines, conventional wines contain sugar in varying in various amounts. I will tell you this. So we lab test every wine. We require that the wine be less than one gram per liter of sugar, which is statistically sugar free. A wine bottle is three quarters of a liter. A one gram. We we require less than one gram of sugar. So, which is statistically sugar-free. So, we just recently, about two months ago, tested the top 20 selling wines in the United States, which is easy to find through industry list. We tested the top 20 best-selling wines. Only two of the 20 qualified for our sugar content, right? All the rest of them would would be non-qualified. They were all much higher. Sugar and alcohol make for a particularly nasty combination. And here's how you know that's true. If you've ever had a shot of tequila or two, that's a very different feeling you have than drinking a margarita or two, right? And so this combination of sugar and alcohol together are not happy partners, right? And so sugar is a large contributor to us feeling bad in conjunction with alcohol. Would you talk about the physical symptoms from sulfites? Because I have friends who they don't really know. They're just guessing that maybe the sulfites in the wine create headaches in them. That's not usually true. Well, I don't think, I think most people don't realize there are up to 76 additives that could be in the wine. Sulfites are naturally occurring in many foods and anything that's fermented, pickles, sauerkraut, kombucha, wine, anything that's fermented contains naturally occurring sulfites. Now, the question is, has the wine been received added sulfur dioxide that leads to very high levels of sulfite, right? That's a separate question. And conventional wines have been sterilized and preserved with sulfur dioxide. So we also test for sulfur in every wine. Our average wine has 39 parts per million of sulfite. Now, the U.S. legal limit is 350 parts per million. And most conventional wines contain between 100 and 250 parts per million. So they're much, much higher in sulfur. Most people, however, are not having a a reaction to to sulfur. 
most sulfur has been used since the Roman times to preserve to preserve wine. So here's here's the thing: most people are getting these ill conditions from either the additives, uh, drinking too much in the way of high alcohol, or biogenetic amines are a very common cause of headaches or flushness or redness or or hot flashes or all of these things are related to biogenetic amines that are very high in commercial wines and the two primary ones are tyramine and histamine you know if you're going to drink and and i choose to drink wine wine is the only thing i drink if you're going to drink i think you should drink wine for its many health properties, including the polyphenols, flavonoids, and antiflavonoids that are found primarily in red wines. So these polyphenols, the reason that red wine is considered to be healthier than white, white wine has just over 200 polyphenols, and red wine has over 800. And the reason red wine has much higher polyphenols, and the most famous one is known as resveratrol, the reason they're much higher in red wine is that red wine, unlike white wine, Red wine gets its color from soaking the skins and the seed and the stems with the juice. If you squeeze the juice of a red wine berry and the juice of a white wine berry, they're both clear. Red wine gets its color from contact with the skins. When you make white wine, you press the juice off of the berry, it goes into a tank, and you ferment it. It's called free-run juice. When you make red wine, you press the juice off the berries— it goes into a tank, and then you take the remaining skin, seeds, and stems, and you put those in the tank with the juice. And that's where red wine gets its color, its increase in polyphenols, and its tannin structure from the seeds and the stems. So that's the reason red wine is considered to be healthier because it has you know, four times the polyphenols, the health compounds that white wine has. That's an important distinction between between red and white wine and why red wines are thought to be healthier. I'm really glad you brought up the health benefits of drinking natural wines. Earlier, we were talking about the neurotoxicity of conventional wines. Can you talk about, so it's, it's nice to circle back to, it's not all bad, but I'm curious about your thoughts on healing and the potential for recovery. So one reaction I had to hearing about how toxic conventional wines are is horror over how much conventional wine I've had in my life. I'm wondering what thoughts you have on our ability to detox even like years of drinking regular wine and to recover, is, and including the brain. Is it too late? Do we? Yes. <laughs> no, it's, it's not too late. I, you know, I do regular extended water fast. And I only eat once a day. You know, anything we're going to consume is going to have some negative effects on us. It's just, it's just nothing begins, nothing good comes from eating other than basic nutrition, right? So I recommend, you know, if you want, people want to detox, they should be thinking about extended water fast and and just consuming less in general. Which is why I only, I don't drink during the daytime ever. You know, I don't eat in the daytime either. So I eat between six and seven at night. That's also when I start drinking wine. So no, I think everything is reversible largely. I think we just have to detox by removing ourselves from toxicity, so just drinking water. I'm a big, big believer in fasting. But there are many health aspects of wine, right? So you have to think of wine in this way. Wine is the only commercially available alcoholic beverage that, in a natural wines case, where the grower and the person who does the fermentation and the bottling and who brings it to you is all the same person or people in the same family. 
all other alcohol, about beers made with barley and wheat and, you know, alcohol is made with potatoes or, you know, it's, it's farmed by somebody else and somebody else makes the out. But in natural wine, there's the spirit of the farm and the farmer because the wine hasn't been sterilized or killed, which also another health benefit of natural wines is that there's bacteria, living bacteria, because it hasn't been sterilized with sulfur dioxide and preserved. There's living bacteria in the wine that is very friendly to the gut microbiome. And so Dr. David Perlmutter, who's New York Times bestselling author on the connection between the gut microbiome and our brain, has written twice about dry farm wines and the living bacterias that exist in natural wine and why they're friendly for the, for the gut microbiome. So that's another ha- health aspect of drinking natural wines. And also, you know, from drinking it, it just tastes more natural, right? And yeah. you go back to drinking a conventional wine, you can taste weird things in it. Yeah, it tastes cleaner. Um, I'm really glad you brought up more good reasons to enjoy wine because my husband and I do have it most probably every day. Um, I had a question. I forgot. Um, Well, I I drink wine every day unless I'm on an extended water fast, and then I'm only drinking water. But the other primary, speaking of your husband, the other primary benefit of drinking wine is love, right? So wine just engenders a warm, euphoric feeling with the people that we share it with. It helps with stress too. I don't know if that's like a bad excuse, but it does. I do think it helps relieve stress from a high energy day, you know, stressful meetings. It's a really nice way to unwind at the end of the day. Of course it is. And, and, and it makes for friendly conversation. It enhances our creative expression. It lowers that window of vulnerability a little bit for us to share and to be closer and to bond. And this way, it's very helpful to create love among people and among our partners and among the people that we're just around. And that life is a wine is a healthy addition to my love life and my love with other people, both romantically and platonically. Just wine just generates love and love. You know, the if you can get more love in your life, that's going to really make you healthy. Yeah, it's probably why it's been a part of our meals since the beginning of time through exactly. many cultures. 10,000 years. Yeah. It's not going away anytime soon. How much wine do you think is a healthy amount to have? Oh, I don't know. I think that's for everybody to individually decide. For myself, you know, I drink at least a bottle a day, uh, sometimes a little more, generally never any less. You know, that's just the right amount for me. Just like with dieting or fasting or any other kind of approach to enhancing our health and wellness, we're all different. And so different things are going to work for different people. Fasting doesn't work for everyone. Ketogenic diet doesn't work for everyone. Many women suffer, can't do a ketogenic diet. It's not not healthy for their hormones. So some do, some don't. And so I think each individual person just needs to gauge what seems healthy for them. I'd love to get your thoughts on any practical non-toxic living tips that you have. You're so mindful and conscious of what you eat, how you live, what you drink. But I'll give you a few minutes to think about that. Before we get to that, let's just talk about how a listener can buy dry farm wines. 
Well, the only way to get dry farm wines is directly from us. So we don't sell our certified wines to restaurants or retailers. Natural wines are quite hard to find in general, quite hard. You can find them in major markets, but even there, they're they're quite quite rare. If you're in New York, you'll have a handful of natural wine retailers. If you're in San Francisco, there are two. If you're uh, in Los Angeles, there's half a dozen. There's probably 10 in New York area. But other than that, they're very, they become very difficult to find. And in middle markets, you won't find them at all. Can you find them online? Wait, just as a tip, now, these are not certified by us. These are just natural wines. They may or may not be the same wines that we certify. But since we only buy 30% of the wines that we taste, either they fell on our labs or they fell on our taste test, our aesthetic. So they may or may not be wines that we would certify, but you should at least be drinking natural wines. You can do a Google search for natural wine in your area, or there is a smartphone app called Raisin that has that is the natural wine app. It's a map-based app. But it's not going to be very active unless you're in a major market or in Europe. But dry buying dry farm wines, you can only buy them direct from us. And we have a special offer for your audience today. We will send them a penny bottle of wine. And all they have to do is go to dryfarmwines, with an S, dot com, forward slash non-toxic living. And they'll get a free, they'll get a penny bottle with their first order. Our wines are also very affordable. So they average $22 a bottle. We pay for shipping. All the bottles are the same price. So we don't have different prices of wine. Shipping is free. And uh, all the information is, you'll find it on that landing page at dryfarmwines.com dot com forward slash non-toxic living and then on all social media we're just dry farm wines great and and before i hear any practical non-toxic living tips that you have would you explain a little bit more about biodynamic farming and i know there's some parts of the world like in france and maybe some other countries where they've just been doing biodynamic farming for centuries so are those wines, do they tend to be cleaner or does it just depend? Well, it's a good question. So biodynamic farming in its official format was invented in 1925 by Rudolf Steiner, who was a German scientist and, and inventor. Um, and you can find all you want to know about biodynamic farming on Google. It's a, it's a deep wormhole, but but let me explain to you basically what it, what it does, and I'll tell you why we generally think biodynamic wines oftentimes taste better. Um, because if biodynamic farming is a prescriptive form of organic farming, and those prescriptions are natural-made um, uh, sprays that the – there's several parts to biodynamic farming. One is these prescriptions, these um, elixirs that they mix up. They, one is made out of quartz, of a quartz dust and water, and they spray it on the vines. Another prescription, in addition to the quartz water, is, is fermented cow manure that's been buried in a cow horn on the corners of each vineyard and then harvested, mixed, and sprayed again. So there, there are a number of these uh, pre they're called preparations in biodynamic farming. There are a number of these preparations. Biodynamic farming also farms by lunar cycle, right? So grapes are pruned during certain moons. 
they are harvested during certain moons, right? And so there's there's a number of these advanced preparations that go into biodynamic farming, and there's a whole bunch of them. But that being said, how does it affect the taste of the wine? We don't. Nobody really knows. But here's our feeling about it. If a farmer is so obsessive, right, that he's going to go through all of this craziness that because do all of this extra work and all of this kind of crazy preparation and lunar farming, and he's going to be hyper obsessive about the best quality of everything. And so it's it just stands to reason that maybe the biodynamic farming is working. Maybe it's not. We don't really know. Nobody can really prove it. But if they're that obsessive, then they're just likely to produce a better product in the first place. That's a good point. What do you, what's your estimation on how many farms practice biodynamic farming or vineyards? I don't know. I don't know. That's a good question. I, and there's a, the reason there's no way to really know in total is because there are biodynamic certifications. Demeter in Germany is the largest one. I don't know how many members they have, but I'm going to find out. That's a good question. But in addition to, there's three certifying bodies for for biodynamic uh, wine. The largest and most dominant one is Demeter. That being said, there are many biodynamic farmers and organic farmers for that matter that are not certified, right? And the reason they're not certified is because it's expensive and there's just small family farms. And many of them just don't like authority and government and anything that has kind of authority over them. They're kind of activists. They're hippies. They just don't, you know, they're kind of people who live a natural way of life and they don't believe in these kind of organizations. You know, they just believe in living a certain way. That makes sense. They probably don't feel they need the approval and certification of a third party. I've heard, is this true? I've heard that part of bi- biodynamic farming is consider in considering the lunar cycles, you also sort of landscape the, the crops in a certain way based on the flow of water. Um, is that true? I, I don't, I'm not sure about that, but, you know, but, but, but then there, there are a number of other variables to grape growing. There's trellising and how close you plant the plants together and in what direction of the sun that they face and so on and so forth. So there's any number of different theories around that and different farmers practice different methods. Yeah. Right. There's it is no an art. Yeah, it is. It is. And it's just the conviction of the farmer and his relationship with nature. It's yeah. natural farmers, natural wine growers universally believe that everything in nature is connected, that everything in the world is connected to its to to everything else, and that the spirit is connected, and that every atom and every part of life and every part of nature is connected, and that it is symbiotic and whole in the way that it operates. They believe in the wholeness of nature, right? And so, and then keeping all of nature alive, which is why they plant, why they have biodynamic, uh, why they have biodiverse farms, Right. So they always have animals and they want to attract butterflies and they plant herbs and plants that attract insects. And, you know, they don't plow very often because they don't want to turn over that soil beneath the surface and have it exposed to the sun, which will kill the millions of organisms that are living below the just below the mulch. Right. And so you don't you won't see. Also, when you look at a natural vineyard, it often oftentimes has very high growing weeds and and plant and, and herbs and grasses and they don't cut it back the the vines exist inside the forest of nature 
right? I mean, that's just it, because they believe everything is connected. And then when we start killing, I don't know if you've seen the film, The Little Biggest Farm. And so no. um, it's, it's a documentary about, um, about nature and its interconnectedness. It was mm-hmm. it's a terrific movie. Um, but anyway, so, so in nature, everything is connected to work for two and a half billion years. And the problem where we got into farming trouble is when we introduced mono agriculture starting in the 1920s. A natural way of farming is, is poly agriculture. So it's many forms of nature acting together in a biodiverse environment, bees, birds, right? So animals, orchards, um, <clears throat> small its own animals. ecosystem. It's its own ecosystem. And what industrial farming we have today is the use of chemicals in farming. And this mono approach to growing one crop in one way and then controlling it with chemicals. Right. Right. That's how most food is grown today. Right. That's but you can taste in natural wine that taste of nature. And how real quickly, how has COVID-19 impacted the natural uh, wine farmers and your business? People are drinking more. <laughs> That's so what I would assume. Great. Natural wine doesn't require anything but this family farm to create it, right? It's nothing but grapes and yeast, and then they create wine. So I don't think it's had any impact on grape farming. You know, I don't even know anybody, even though we know hundreds and hundreds of farmers across Europe and, you know, probably 100 in Italy. I don't know anybody who's sick. I don't know anybody who's been negatively affected or their families. So the thing with grape farming and natural wine farms is they're in the country. They're, they're very rural. They're mm-hmm. in the countryside. They're not in cities. Yeah. There's no density. And so, um, and so I don't know anybody who's been affected there. This year's harvest will continue. Grape growing is going on right now um, in the Western Hemisphere here and there. And, uh, and harvest will happen. And, yeah. you know, they'll make wine. And so we – the only challenge to our business has been there's been a significant slowdown in the uh, in the ocean freight system that brings wine over, and so we've had to jump through some hoops there. And and you know containers are it started that they were down 90 percent. They're now back up to about 50 percent of capacity to pre-COVID capacity. So it's better. But and it's very difficult to see wine, natural wine, because it hasn't been sterilized and preserved. It has to be transported in a refrigerated container, right? Because it's not been sterilized and any fluctuation in temperature could damage the wine. Now, not true for commercial wines where they've been sterilized. They're more stable. So there's been a real shortage of these reefers, as they're called, refrigerated containers coming over from France in particular. But it just means instead of taking eight weeks, it's taking 12 weeks, right, to get it here. So we're getting it, just not as fast as we'd like. Okay. So what practical non-toxic living tips do you have? And I'd love to hear even just regular go-to meals or snacks you have that are uh, healthy and convenient. Well, non-toxic living, I think the greatest toxicity that, that modern people face is the toxicity of the trauma of thinking. My number one tip in a modern world for non-toxic living is to stop the 
thinking, right? So thinking is the greatest debilitation that we have in a modern world. So most of us are ruminating all the time on regrets of the past or usually anxiety about the future. And this is particularly true during COVID and uncertainty. Uncertainty is our greatest source of stress. Even if we know something bad's going to happen, we can we can process that egoic mind much better than uncertainty. So not knowing is our greatest stressor. I believe that stress is our greatest toxic cause of 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 the suffering of humanity. And so meditation is this is the cure to teach our brain to be silent. At my company, even my entire staff meditates for an hour together every morning before we begin creating in the world. And so I believe meditation is the foundation of a well-lived life. In addition to that, my second go-to is, is fasting. I think fasting less is more. Um, and so regular extended water fast. I normally do three days. I've done five, seven, and ten day. But I find most of the benefits seem to be derived in the first three days. So I will n- – Last eat on Sunday night and night eat again until Wednesday night and just have water only in between. I also personally, this is just a personal thing. I know this is a highly addictive drug, but I personally found great benefit in giving up caffeine about a year ago. Um, and so for very even, uh, for, for, for me, it just produced a very even energy flow throughout the day instead of these peaks and valleys of energy that I was fueling with caffeine. And I was drinking like three or four cups of coffee a day. So for me, that was another huge step forward. Uh, For snacks, I don't snack. Um, And so because I only eat at night. And so when I sit down, I sit down for a meal. Uh, I occasionally have cheese, not very often. Um, But I don't really have any go-to snacks um, in particular. I do have a something I like to eat that's not exactly non-toxin. It is a bit off program for me, but I like French fries. I just well, have kind of that's why a, I, I'm about practical non-toxic living because most of your life is so mindful and clean, but choosing French, you choose French fries because you love it so much. I love fried potatoes with salt. They're just really, it's just a thing. I don't eat them often. I don't eat them in high volume. And I find that I can stay in ketosis if I don't eat a whole lot of them as long as I'm mixing them with other proteins, fats, and vegetables that don't have too much of a negative impact on me. But just I just happen to kind of like them. It's kind of my cheat food. I just don't eat them in large quantities. I just like the taste of them. So anyway, other than that, I, I think meditation, fasting, which are kind of closely related because when we fast, we have to sort of be focused. Fasting is not difficult. It's emotional. Right, So we have an emotional connection to food. We have an emotional connection to pleasure. I have an emotional connection to drinking wine. And all that goes away when I'm fasting. And so we have to enter the fast with, with, a, with a mindful purpose of knowing that we're going to get to the other side of it with a lot of benefit. right? Because it is, it's, I never eat because I'm hungry, ever. I'm never hungry. I eat because I want pleasure. right? I eat because I'm emotionally connected to it. It took about six or eight weeks to acclimate to eating only once per day. And it wasn't that I was hungry. I just desired eating, right? I just had a desire to eat. What are your preferred sources of fat? Olive oil is my number one choice, followed probably by coconut oil and butter. 
those are kind of my three, but I, olive oil is my fat of choice. Are you as picky about olive oil as you are about wines? I am. I, fortunately, we're thinking about selling olive oil. I don't know if we'll get around to it or not, but fortunately, I have these small family firms in, in, in Europe who send me olive oil from their farm, you know, as a gift. And so, uh, so I'm able to get my, I get my wine from the same place. I get my olive oil from the same place I get it my wine. Look, it's, it's estimated in 60 minutes a couple of years ago, they did a special on olive oil that 75% of the extra virgin olive oil that's sold in the United States isn't even olive oil. It's, Isn't there it's, like hexane in some of them? Yeah, it's, it's super, super tricky. So you want to yeah. get your olive oil from a trusted source. Mm-hmm. And uh, Do you have and, brands and, that you could recommend that are easy in my for case, people to buy? You know what? I don't, right off the top of my head, I don't buy oil often yeah. because it's gifted to me by these small family farms. And we're thinking about, you know, actually you selling should. it. You yeah, should. Yeah, we're thinking that. about it. We just, it just, again, it's just. I know, you have a stuff. lot going on. Yeah, yeah, just busy. Well, I love your responses. Thank you so much. This was a fascinating conversation that I can't wait to share with my community. And I don't think I can drink any other wines other than dry farm wines after this conversation. Awesome. Well, listen, thanks for having me on the show today. It was a lot of fun. And uh, I look forward to seeing you again. Yes. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening. Podcast show notes can be found at my website at nontoxicliving.tips. To more easily listen to other episodes, please subscribe to the Practical Non-Toxic Living Podcast. And if you'd like to support it, then please like it and share it. Until next time.